She had like a fighter jet fly by, if you guys heard that at all. The Seahawks game starting. Oh, nice. That is a cool plane. Not a Concorde, though. No. <laughs> Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome back to episode 20 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today's episode is one that's been coming for a long, long time. It's a cornerstone of all of computing today, Google's 2005 acquisition of Android. I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, 2005, uh, when you think about the numbers, it doesn't feel that long ago. But when you think about you know, the first time you saw an Android phone and heard about what Google was working on, it seems like the iPhone hadn't come out yet, right? Yeah. This was pre before iPhone was just a glimmer in Steve Jobs' eye. Yeah. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. So to all of our new listeners, uh, welcome. We were uh, featured on um, New and Noteworthy and uh, an iTunes 
over the past looks like a week or two and uh, about doubled our, our subscriber base. So thanks so much for everyone uh, trying us out and giving us a shot. I think what I want to do is is go over the format of the show since uh, a lot of you are new and um, and talk about what we'll cover today in uh, in kind of reviewing and grading Google's Android acquisition. So the first thing uh, is, is something sort of newish that we're trying called Community Showcase. And we um, felt it was important since we have so many listeners who are working on projects and building things, a lot of entrepreneurs, and um, we like to, on each episode, talk about something that one of those people is working on. So that we'll do our, our Community Showcase. Then we go into Acquisition History and Facts, where David takes us through... What actually happened. Yeah, yeah. What happened and when. Yeah. And then, uh, then we get into the acquisition category where we decide if it's a people acquisition, technology, product, business line. We recently added asset to our categories or the uh, ever so famous other. other. Yes. Um, then we talk about what would have happened otherwise, uh, what tech themes this illustrates for us. We then formally give the grade of, of our acquisition from the episode. Then we have some, some follow-ups and a, uh, a section called the carve-out. This is where, where David and I um, grab something from our, our lives that we've seen with a book or a piece of software or uh, anything in the media that we think is um, either related or completely unrelated to the topic at hand. And, Just something uh, fun that strikes our fancy. The other thing um, that we sometimes do now is hot takes. Hot takes. If something big uh, in the M&A world or otherwise happened in the past week or two, we'll do a quick discussion. We will. So that's the show. Indeed. All right. So our community showcase this week, listener Matt, I, I might butcher this, Morgante uh, released a book called Patagonia on a Budget. Uh, it's on Product Hunt right now. Um, if you search on Amazon for Patagonia on a Budget, you can you can find it. And it's how to have your adventure in Patagonia on $30 a day. And there's a ton of cool photographs in there. I uh, I should uh, I should go pick up a copy because it looks looks super cool. Patagonia is awesome. That brings us to uh, also for our new listeners our Slack community. So we have a community uh, channel on Slack, and if you'd like to join it, uh, there's lots of great discussion going on on there. Uh, just go to our website acquired.fm, and there's a sign up uh, form there, and then you can hang out with the community uh, throughout the week. Yeah, and if you uh, if you want us to show off what you're working on. Um Drop a link in and we'll, and we'll check it out. So onto this week's topic. David, you want to hit it with the acquisition history and facts? As always, Ben. So Android has been mentioned. This one has been a while coming. We've had a lot of requests for this. Uh, we've been saving it and we felt it was time to finally dive in here. There is so much to unpack here, so we'll get into it. October 2003, Android is a startup company just founded in Palo Alto by Andy Rubin, Rich Miner, Nick Sears, and Chris White. And Andy Rubin, the CEO, was basically born to start this company. So uh, Andy's career started at Carl Zeiss, the um, uh, the camera lens, uh, camera technology and camera lens uh, manufacturing company. Uh, then he moved to Apple. At Apple, he met a bunch of folks. Uh, this was uh, during the John Scully era. Wow, I did not know he was at Apple. He was at Apple, yep, there for a couple of years. And he and a bunch of other people spun off from Apple and started a company called General Magic, hmm. which not a lot of people remember, um, but this was a spinoff from Apple, actually went public itself. And the whole, they never launched a product, but what they were doing was they were building essentially a tablet. Uh, like huh. a personal communicator, 
you know, sort of the a palm competitor. Uh, and a lot of that tech, I believe, ended up in the Newton. At they, Apple. They, they went public? It was a public company, yep. And then it ended up going bankrupt. Wow. It was super ambitious at the time. I, I believe also some of the technology that they developed there became the standard for USB. Huh. A lot of really cool stuff happened there. So <clears throat> he went from Apple to General Magic. And then a bunch of General Magic alums went and started a company called Web TV, which you mm. probably do remember. And Web TV uh, was part of uh, this was in the kind of mid to late nineties uh, vision that uh, a lot of people in technology had at the time that the internet was not going to happen on computers in a big way. It was going to happen on your TV. That's right. So this was a set top box like this, your cable box. This is in the era that Microsoft's making the bet that they should do MSNBC, like a technology enabled television channel yep. joint venture. This is the AOL time Warner days. Mm -hmm. Like it's all new media, old media eyeballs. Like <laughs> it's the eyeball economy. So web TV ends up getting acquired by Microsoft and, uh, and, and Andy and the team, uh, go up to, go up to Seattle, work at work at Microsoft. I don't know if they actually ever came up to Seattle. Um, but they build Microsoft TV, hmm. which as we know now is an abject failure. Uh, but shortly thereafter, Andy leaves and he starts a new company called danger. So danger was founded in the, in the late nineties, I believe after Andy left Microsoft and they made a little device called the Sidekick. Mm. And this was sort of, RIM already existed. So there were Blackberries out there, but this was the first consumer-focused uh, smartphone, really. Yeah, and it had like celebrities where it had a cool factor because they would show their danger in, in you know, photo shoots. And like this this was a thing. You, you wanted to have yep. one of these. I remember the first time that I started hearing about um, about the sidekick in danger was watching Entourage. Oh man! <laughs> and it was like everybody on Entourage had a sidekick. I think there's actually a, a episode where this is a plot point that Turtle like gets a sidekick and like it's you know he's, <laughs> he's super cool. I it, it can't was, remember exactly. But. It is so recognizable too that the way that it spun out. I mean the the industrial design was crazy unique and super cool. Yep. Super. I mean there was very little on the market like this like i said there were smartphones they existed but this was like the windows mobile days there was blackberry right, it, was for business people. it was for business people yeah. um and uh and and then the sidekick comes out and it's the first time like oh we can bring this technology to consumers as well um so andy was the ceo of danger and then uh he ends up leaving uh relatively early on in the life of the company um oh by the way supposedly uh larry page and sergey brin were huge sidekick users ah. as well <laughs> um and uh so he ends up leaving and starting a new company that he calls android and the vision for android is this is post-acquisition uh no no this is pre-acquisition of uh. danger danger doesn't end up getting acquired by microsoft until 2008 oh wow much later uh, but in 2003, Andy leaves and starts Android. Mm -hmm. And whereas Danger was a sort of full stack company, they were making the hardware, they were making the software that went on these sidekicks. Um, they were dealing with carriers, everything. Mm -hmm. Android um, is, is an operating system company. And they want to take uh, Linux and essentially make it into a an operating system capable of running on mobile devices and the first sort of uh we now know android runs on 
so many devices today, yep. the first target market that they're going to go after is digital cameras. That's right. That's right. I remember reading that. And I think what they assessed that it's not a big enough market. Yeah. At that time. Which is interesting because like it was a huge market at the time. I mean, this was 2003. Everybody had the point, you know, and, point shoots. and shoots. Um, and uh, it would be interesting to know like what thought process they went through and deciding that that wasn't big enough. But yeah. um, fortunately, they made the right call yep. uh, and quickly pivot into focusing the device on mobile phones. Yeah, I wonder, it, it didn't, it, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it, I don't think it was apparent in 2003 that point-and-shoots would go away and become part of phones. Like, could, could you, is there a world where you see that maybe the other way around, that you're like, well, we should build a, a really great camera because at some point cellular technology will become you know lightweight enough that we can put it in into the camera yeah yeah uh it, it would certainly have been hard to imagine um cameras on phones to the extent they even existed then getting good enough that you could right actually take real pictures on it yeah i don't think i had a camera phone until <laughs> 2005 or six yep later than and this they, time they were period. just horrendous oh they were awful <laughs> um awful uh, I mean, even the first iPhone in 2007, like the camera was part of it, but it wasn't like that was a big selling point. And right. contrast that now with I, I how huge the camera is on the iPhone. I literally just pre-ordered a form factor that I don't want because the camera is better. Like I, the, the plus yeah. is too big for me. And I, I just, I, you know, I had this weird realization that, wow, I use this thing more as a camera than a phone. Maybe Andy and team were like more right than they thought at yep. the time. Anyway, getting back on track. So as far as we know, um, they never raised any venture capital at Android, but Steve Perlman, who had been the CEO of Web TV and who had been at General Magic with Andy, and Andy had worked for him at both places, um, at one point there's uh, in the lore of, of pre-Google Android, apparently Andy was running low on cash <laughs> and Steve shows up at the office uh, at Android with an envelope with $10,000 in cash in it. And he just gives it to Andy. And he refuses uh, to take a share in the company. Andy tries to give him shares for it. And he says, no, no, this is just no, for you. He's just giving him the cash. <laughs> <laughs> what a good friend. I know. That's awesome. I know. Steve, will you be our friend? <laughs> um, so, um, so that happens. They're working away on this operating system and uh, as we mentioned a minute ago, Larry and Sergey had been big sidekick fans. Uh, they had actually met Andy uh, back in back in the day when he was working on Danger. And July 2005 comes along and Google ends up just acquiring Android before they've shipped anything. They're a long way away from shipping anything. Um, deal terms not announced. This was a small team. Hadn't raised any venture in Palo Alto. Uh, rumored to be about $50 million dollars. And what's interesting is that many years later, uh, David Lowy, who was um, at one point head of uh, Google's corporate development in, in 2010, he's being interviewed and he calls this Google's, quote, best deal ever. <laughs> so they've acquired this company. It's Andy and team. They're working on this operating system. Um, immediately, you know, Google had just gone public a year before. Lots of rumors start circling about what Google is up to here. You know, are they working on... The G phone, you know, this is kind of like the G drive that we talked about right. with, um, with Google Docs, the Google, the rightly acquisition for years, people are speculating what is going on here? What is going on here? And there's no G phone. Andy and team are working away for years. Um, and, uh, and, and so pretty much nothing happens until 2007. 
Mm-hmm. And then in January 2007, the world changes. Yep. Steve Jobs Steve, announces the iPhone. The the breakthrough internet communications device where nobody really understands what he's talking about and applauds it's a, phone, a little bit. It's an iPod. It's a <laughs> breakthrough internet, internet communications, communications device. <laughs> one of the best um one of the best, you know, product launches and and speeches and presentations of all time. Yep. Um so that happens in January 2007. Meanwhile, Andy and team within Google had been working on the operating system and they'd been working with hardware partners about what the you know phones that they would ultimately bring to market would look like. And they were working with HTC mm-hmm. and uh, they had a prototype and it looked a lot like the Palm Trio. If you remember that, it was not a touchscreen. It had, you know, Blackberry like keys on it. Right. Um, I'm not sure if it had a stylus. Uh, it may. And and so then they, they watch the iPhone announcement, which, you know, at the time it was, it was amazing. Like I, I lined up for the first iPhone. Like I couldn't wait oh, to yeah. get it, but like I, I lined up for the first iPhone and didn't buy one. I, <laughs> I was, I was young and did not have any money. And it was like, I couldn't pay for the data plan, but I wanted to be part of it. That's amazing. <laughs> so I was lucky. I had just graduated from college when it all, when it came out that summer, literally. Mm. And this was the first cell phone I bought. Like I went off my parents' plan Got my oh. own plan just so I could get an iPhone. That's right, because they launched special iPhone plans that didn't include yep. family plans. Because it was, we'll get back to this, it was an exclusive with AT&T, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, which becomes quite important later. Um, so, so this happened, and, and you know, consumers were dying to get this thing. I think people were calling it the God phone. Um, but this is also the time Steve Ballmer is saying, like, you know, literally laughing about it. Like a lot of... Uh, corporate tech and big companies, you know, are really discounting um, the transformative power that the iPhone's about to have here. And meanwhile, the the there's a great story about a bunch of uh, um, RIM employees that were sitting around that watched the keynote and said it was fake. They were like, they there is literally no way to do this, that we've tried, you know, that this is not, you can't get scroll performance like that. You yep. can't make it, you can't make a screen like that. And, and uh, it's like, it's amazing how, you know, you can get Steve Ballmer dismissing it while simultaneously the BlackBerry guys don't even believe it's possible to do that yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's interesting to, to look at the spectrum of reactions here. You've got Steve Ballmer who just dismisses it. The BlackBerry guys are in denial. And the Google reaction, so there's an engineer later, uh, a interview later with Google engineer Chris Tisalvo, who was working on Android at the time. Uh, and, and he said, he says, quote, what we had suddenly looked just so 90s it's one of those things that are it's one of those things that is so obvious when you see it and uh and they realized that they had to go back to the drawing board immediately that this was game changing wow so this was this was january 2007 and they had these prototypes that were pretty far along with htc and and had they started the open handset alliance that, that comes in a minute um but they scrap everything they realize hey the world has changed we now need to compete with the iphone so later that year in November, um, Google, and, and it's interesting the timing here, be, we don't know when they were originally planning to do this, but they ended up doing it in November. So after the, the iPhone had launched, um, they have a big event and they announce and the Android operating system. And they also announce, equally importantly, the Open Handset Alliance. Um, and so the Open Handset Alliance, they have HTC, Sony, Samsung, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Qualcomm. So like the whole it's like the phone stack, ecosystem, right? the whole stack. Manufacturer, they're the operating system, they have the carriers. 
Yep. And this is this is for all of these these players in the ecosystem. You know, if they don't realize already, this comes to be this is the only way they're going to stand up to Apple is they all need to work together and there needs to be this open operating system tying it all together, which becomes Android. So they announced both at the same time. And what's super interesting is um, as part of the announcement, they also have the $10 million Android challenge. So they make it super clear, Google does, that Android is an open operating system. And that means two things. One, it's open source. Mm -hmm. So anybody can use it. And later on, this leads to forks of Android like Cyanogen, um, like the Kindle Fire. Xiaomi as an entire company. Becomes super important later. Um, But that's, it's completely free. Anybody can take the Android software and do whatever they want with it. Mm The other part of open that Google really focuses on is developers can develop for the platform. So this was before the iPhone iOS was not yet open to That's developers. Right. WWDC in July or in June of 2008 is when Apple kind of walked back there. You can make web yep. apps and announce the app store. Yep. And, and Steve Jobs initially was, you know, his posturing was we, do, you know, we don't want developers. Uh, we want to control everything of right. the software stack. Um, and, uh, Hard to imagine what the iPhone would be like today if there were not third-party developers. Uh, Not successful. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Google kind of pushes them towards this with when they make Android open and developers start to realize the massive reach with, you know, there are however many computers there are PCs there are in the world and web browsers, but there's a lot more phones and they can reach this huge consumer base. Um, So this really is sort of like, Google's kind of putting a flag in the ground mm-hmm. um, and saying, hey, we're open. That means two things. We're open to the entire hardware and supply chain ecosystem, but much more importantly in the long term, we're open to developers. Hmm. So that was that was November 2007. But remember, they realized like they couldn't compete with the iPhone. So they right. end up not shipping the first Android phone until almost a year later hmm. in October 2008. And that's when the um, the HTC Dream uh, slash in the U.S. the T-Mobile G1. That's right. Uh, is the first Android phone, the the much vaunted, anticipated Google phone, and that still at, comes out. That's still at a keyboard, right? Still at a keyboard. So it was a touchscreen, mm-hmm. um, and it had a it had a scroll wheel on it. That's right. Uh, and physical hardware buttons, which were part of Android for a long time, um, and then it had a slide out full QWERTY keyboard. Uh, much <laughs> like uh, much like the sidekick that slid out uh, horizontally from the device. Huh. Super interesting. So it doesn't really look anything like the iPhone. It's kind of its own thing. Um, but this is this is the first uh, the first Android phone that finally comes to market. So with T-Mobile, made by HTC, um, and it comes out sort of just in time for the holidays of 2008. It doesn't really make much of a splash. You know, at this point, the iPhone. Um, you know, the growth in iPhone shipments by today's standards were slow, but at the time it was like completely taking off. Yeah. Clear that this was a hit. And I remember Steve Jobs on stage <coughs> saying that their goal for the, I think it was their goal for the first year of the iPhone was to capture 1% of phones. I, I don't think he said smartphones. I think he intentionally. I think he, in, I believe it was intentionally. Because they, they, they yeah. didn't want to acknowledge that smartphones were a category, much like they never acknowledged netbooks or. Right. And, and it, I think like it's it's amazing looking back, like their their hope was to get 1%. And I think that's that's kind of what they tracked actually that, that first year. But then the explosion after that, never could have predicted. And then, and then the market just completely exploded. So, um, 
So it wasn't actually then until around the holiday season of 2009 that Google, you know, who, who knows how much Google drove this, but essentially the rest of the wireless phone industry ecosystem, except for Apple, realized they have a big problem. Yep. A big, big problem because the iPhone is on its way. You know, at this point, uh, 3G has been launched. So uh, that was one of the big things with the original iPhone. Oh, like it's great, but like it's slow. And 3G was out, but Apple... It was one of those things where Apple had been working on the iPhone for so long that the only thing they could get to market by July of 2007 was an, an Edge was phone. was Edge, yep. And then what, uh, 08 was Quote, the 3G. 2.5G, if you right. remember, Ben. That's right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and by 2009, Apple had then opened up iOS to developers, so that wasn't even an, an advantage any, anymore. Um, and, and the amount of... So remember, iPhone was still exclusive to AT&T at this point in the US. Mm-hmm. And AT&T is just raking in subscribers at this point becoming it was already I believe it was already the largest um phone network before the iPhone and at this point, you know, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile uh, have huge huge issues. Yeah, that's got to be one of the best partnership or exclusivity agreements in the history of the American corporation is is AT&T strapping itself to the the iPhone as a rocket. Yep. I mean it, it, the the thing that paints it in my mind for how like how big a deal that was is how big a deal the opposite was. Like how widely anticipated the Verizon iPhone was. And right. when the Verizon iPhone came out how crazy all my friends went that were non AT&T with all this incredible pent up demand for yep. it. Which um which is uh interesting that by holiday 2009 there's finally been enough time in the product cycle that verizon google everybody else all the handset makers realize they got to do something and so verizon launches the droid in 2009 and they paid lucasfilm every single time the word droid was mentioned isn't that amazing it's at the bottom of every magazine ad it's it's so awesome that they were like yeah screw it it's worth it it's totally it's worth <laughs> it and and i mean this was in a lot of ways this was a phone ahead of its time yeah but the whole positioning was against the iphone here it was the the campaign was called droid does and uh this was like the you know the old mac and pc campaigns but in reverse it was like well your iphone doesn't do x but droid does that's right and the that this is like the full swing of the the smartphone wars heating up where now we sort of settled into this place where you know android's got about 80 percent of the people iphone's got about 20 percent of the people but iphone people pay you know for apps and and much more so than android people and it's interesting how it's reached this almost like like not a peace treaty but like it's it's like we thought there was going to be one winner in this smartphone wars and it was going to be a crazy five-year thing and one person we thought it was going to be microsoft and apple all over again right right and it's interesting how we've reached this equilibrium where like the the world exists in a a multi-platform way kind of sustainably for at least this this set of years this this moment in time yep and and then the the in that initial droid does thing they they intentionally like it, it was confusing to people that you could get an android but it wasn't from google and it wasn't called an android yep and so i think it was like an intentional move to say you know what we're just gonna like just like lean into that the phone's gonna be called a droid it's the main one we're gonna market we're not gonna have android be a consumer brand yep and it was amazing how how many and important to remember too who made the the droid it was motorola which we'll get to in a second. Oh yeah, yeah. But it was, it, it, I guess my point is like it's amazing how it was in most people's lexicon to ask, "Do you have an iPhone or a Droid?" 
Yeah. It wasn't Android. It was a droid. Yeah. Um, so yeah, everything you're, you're saying, Ben, I mean, this was like, these were the holy wars of mobile that, that got kicked off with the droid. And, um, and, uh, so basically from 2010 to kind of 2012 ish, there's just this race where everybody who's not Apple in the ecosystem is racing to copy Apple and then try and surpass if they can, but even just get to parody. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, towards the end of that time, that's when you see Samsung really emerging. I mean, they were the most shameless, just literally ripped wholesale <laughs> everything from the iPhone, but it worked. And so fast, like two months after Apple would announce something like some team at, at Samsung would get to it work all night and then they'd rush it to market and then they'd announce that it exists. And then like, you know, there'd be, maybe you could get them from the supply chain. Maybe you couldn't, but like they put a stake in the ground that like, yes, Samsung has this too. And you yep. see it all the way through like touch ID. Like they had slide the, to unlock. It, like it, there was a big fight about that. You know. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and, and to the, to the bitterness involved here. So, you know, Steve Jobs is towards the end of his life at this point. And, um, and the Walter Isaacson, you know, biography that comes out, which is this incredible book. He has this quote in there. He says, I will spend my last dying breath if I need to. And I will spend every penny of Apple's 40 billion in the bank. Funny that at the time Apple yeah, only cute. had 40 billion in the bank. Like that's cute, right? Um, to write this wrong, I'm going to destroy Android because it's a stolen product. I'm willing to go thermonuclear war on this. <laughs> <laughs> this is incredible. Um, you know, but this was, this was the height, you know, and, and so, you know, that comes out and, and then, um, and then Vic and Gun- that guy, <laughs> incredible. Um, it's amazing, like how much the world has changed though, from his vision, you know, when he was alive, um, and how different things are now, you know, like the famous quote, like if you see that you Steve see said, stylus, if you see a stylus, it. we blew it. You did, you, did you hear the interview with Tim Cook a couple of weeks ago that, that they asked, they, um, I forget who did it, but the, in, in Apple's recent little PR rush, they asked Tim Cook about that exact thing. And they're trying to push him on the point that like, are you guys blowing it? And, uh, and Tim starts with, well, first of all, it's a pencil, not a stylus. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love Apple love marketing. <laughs> what would Steve have said? Uh, but Tim isn't Steve, which is the point. Although and Apple T- is not. D- uh, Tim did recently, you know, in the last couple of years, refer to the Android ecosystem as a toxic hell stew. <laughs> or I think he pointed out it, it was like a quote rip from a, a, a writer that they put up on the, the stage at Apple. So, uh, you know, Google doesn't just like take this lying down. They, no. you know, they strike back. And um, and so Vic Gundotra, uh, who is a longtime exec uh, mm-hmm. at, uh, at Google, and uh, I believe founder of or in charge of google plus at one point that was that was a low mark on on his uh, his time there but um at at io uh, google's big conference in 2010 vix you know asked about this and uh, steve's you know quote and apple's feelings about it and and he says if google did act this is a quote if google did act we faced a draconian future a future where one man one company one device one carrier would be our only choice that's a future we don't want yeah, it's a very like noble way to approach. It's why like the you know business. the famous Apple 1984 commercial. It's like Apple is now the you know the man talking on the screen, and yep. you know Google and Android is throwing the hammer at it. Yeah, if you can find a way to position yourself as an underdog, even if you have a monopoly in search and are one of the largest technology companies in the world, by God, you should do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're literally out appling Apple yep. at Apple's own game here, um, and. Uh, 
and and so you know it it was a, a war uh, and at the time you know so many everybody in the press everybody in the tech world was you know is it android going to win is ios going to win what's going to happen what should i and startups you know at the time we you know, our portfolio companies and as we we were talking to new investments it's like well what are you going to develop for like it was a big question then because it was really hard to develop for both right i guess it's probably a good time to say for new listeners uh david's a vc here at uh at madrona venture group we're we're recording out of their offices this weekend and um i'm over at pioneer square labs just down the street and we're a we're a startup studio so that's probably helpful to have some some context on like who, who, <laughs> who we are, are and why what we're we do. doing this yep. yeah um and uh a couple other side notes that uh, uh one that is more a quirk of history but is just too fun not to talk about here. In August of 2010, HTC acquires a majority stake in Beats, <laughs> uh, Beats Audio, and as a result of that, from kind of you know 2011 to 2012, 2013 ish, um, you can still go buy these things on Amazon, which is amazing. We will link to this in the show notes. There are Beats branded Android phones out there on the market, HTC phones. I kind of want to buy one and like bring it to my next meeting at Apple, like pretending it's like my phone and yeah. see what happens. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, total like quirk of history. Uh, I mean, there were uh, HTC was was bundling Beats headphones with their Android phones for a while when they were selling them. <laughs> Hard to imagine that in today's world of you know Beats being part of Apple. I know. Um, also makes me realize just like just how small the technology world is. I feel like we talk about this a lot on the show, but like whether it's, you know, Mark Laurie, you know, had worked at Amazon and Amazon had acquired his last company and then he's vowing to destroy them or, you know, all the companies that came out of PayPal or um, Photoshop and Pixar that came out of Lucasfilm. Like it's really a it's a small world in yeah. this um, in this corner of the economy here. It um, is. And, and the other um, it's funny. These are like not I guess they're sort of tech themes or like themes of the show. It's funny how um, long things seem in our mind and how short they were in number of years. Like when Apple launched the iPhone in 2007, Android had not been announced yet and they were not at war. They were so friendly that like... Eric Schmidt Eric was Schmidt, on yeah, Apple's came board. on stage in uh, in at the launch of the iPhone and talked about how Google was going to be an integral part of the iPhone. And it was. I mean, Google Maps was a huge like that was a tentpole feature of not of, to mention Google Search, which we will get into in a minute. Indeed, uh, but it's incredible how fast these companies became at each other's throats and completely separated. I mean, if if you the the way that companies are direct competitors like if you go back 20 years apple and microsoft are direct competitors and hate each other and google's like like this benevolent you know hands off we serve all group and in a, a very in very short order from 2007 to 2009 it became apple and google at each other's throats and fast forward to today where like Microsoft services are all over all these platforms and, yep. and like Apple's partnering with Microsoft on a lot of things. And, and another crazy example, like Apple launching this big enterprise partnership with IBM, like how fast the world changes. Yep. And and you were in the middle of this. I mean, you were one of the original folks on office for iPad. It was, it was, yeah, that was a, was a heck of a project. Um, so we'll get more into this in a minute, but, but I think it was, I mean, this is a, a little flash forward to tech themes for me, but, um, I think the reason this was happening was like all these big tech companies realized all of a sudden that this was the opening of a new frontier and a new market, the mobile market that was going to be literally the biggest market 
that technology and maybe the world had ever seen. Yeah. I mean, because Apple becomes the world's most valuable company during this time period. So all these companies are realizing that you're going to have, you know, first a couple hundred million people in the United States and then a billion people around the world and, and, and then and then multiple billions of people and ultimately every person in the world mm-hmm. uh, when we get to the end state, you know, still a couple of years hence from now is going to be coming online, buying a smartphone, having access to t- technology for the first time. And, you know, as friendly as Apple and Google were before this, all of a sudden it's a race to go capture this market. But I think the mistake that they made is, uh, or at least that, um, I don't know that it was a mistake, but the fight that they were fighting at first wasn't the right fight. They were fighting for the like hardware layer. Right. And well, was the question is, was Google doing that at first? Like why, why did Google, so this is, this is sort of as we transition from the, 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 his, the history and facts into more of like our analysis portion where we are today. It's very clear that the reason that Android needs to exist is to prevent Apple from being the front door for users to use Google services. Like Google can't afford to give up that control, number one, in case you know people are going to use other services instead of Google services, namely Google search, where all their money comes from, or all their revenue comes from. Yep. And secondarily, there is an agreement that gets signed with people who are sending traffic to Google, and I may as well just come out and, and, and start with this number right now, 34% of Google search revenue from their their AdSense, right? Uh, well, it's AdWords. AdWords. So um, what Ben's referring to, one of the, for our new listeners, one of the things that we love on this show is lawsuits. Not <laughs> not, not targeted at us, but uh, between the, the companies that we cover because all sorts of really interesting things come out in lawsuits. And in um, uh, over the last few years, Oracle has been uh, waging a, a lawsuit against Google for Google's and Android's use of Java in creating um, and Java's APIs in creating Android. And um, one of the things that came out in that lawsuit is how much money Google pays Apple for for having Google search as the default search on the iPhone. And it's pretty incredible. Yeah, the the amazing thing, Dave and I were... were, were um like looking pouring over the lawsuit and thinking about this it's not a a flat fee like apple gets 34 percent of of all the search revenue that comes from their platform so somewhere in the neighborhood of 34 percent. it was at one time around that it's a lot of this part of the lawsuit google freaked out about and had sealed but for a moment it was public how how this worked so in, in 2015, um, uh, estimates from Goldman Sachs are that Google did uh, about $15 billion of revenue from their, their mobile search. And so Apple um, has about 18% of the global market share. So if you kind of figure out what that comes to, it's about $918 million by that calculation, or as released in the, these documents, about a billion dollars that, uh, that Google paid to Apple for Apple to be using um, or directing people to Google search. So then you start thinking about, okay, the strategy for Android as it is today is very clearly to basically get free customers, basically get people that are already Google's customers to directly interface with Google and, and search. And that way, Google doesn't have to pay that that yeah. revenue split to anybody else for access to those and users. And this is something that I didn't really realize until we started doing the research for this episode, but is kind of mind-blowing if you think about it. Like, A... <laughs> Apple is getting a percentage of AdWord Google AdWords revenue that happens on the iPhone. Like that's crazy. Uh, one, um, but two, like 
it all makes sense for Google now. Like to the extent that people use Android phones mm-hmm. or use the Chrome browser on the iPhone instead mm-hmm. of Safari mm-hmm. or any one of a number of ways that people are searching on platforms that are owned by Google versus, or at least controlled by Google versus other platforms where they have to pay out, you know, revenue shares. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just a, it's a no brainer. Yeah. The, the case for like, basically Google is a company that makes money when people search and then click on ads. Like that is, that is, yep. they do all these and other people things, search but that's on and butter. properties that are not Google, even indirectly, like they're searching on Google, but they're doing it in the Safari browser. Yep. Google has to pay attacks every time that happens yeah and so there google basically is is uh the entire reason that android exists is so that google doesn't need to pay for access to their own existing customers and what mobile did was it inserted this new wedge into you know google already had this relationship where everybody you know opened up their computer and google was their their home page and they would search or it was built into browsers through all these agreements they had cut mobile opens this opportunity for all of a sudden there's this whole new platform with with all these people that have switched over to it and all these people that are coming online for the first time for the first time <laughs> yep. yeah and not only does Google have to make sure that those places don't use their competitors, small, smaller as they may be, um, but they actually have to pay to get the, you know, pay a cut of their revenue for the the privilege of being the the default search there. So it, when you kind of take a step back, like the the strategy for Android, the strategy for the, the reason Chrome exists, like these things are are all the same, and it's to make yep. sure that no one else is inserted between the revenue generated by clicking on ads from search and their customers. And it's interesting, right? Like uh, Wall Street and plenty of other analysts that are looking at Google, they always throw stones at Google and they say like, oh, come on, like this company can't succeed at anything except AdWords. Like none of their products make any money. Android doesn't make any money. Mm -hmm. Uh, YouTube doesn't make any money, as we talked about, uh, which I I still feel good about our grade on YouTube. But um, Chrome doesn't make any money. We but get the, a C for the record. Yep. Um, but uh, but the reality is things like Android, things like Chrome are huge economic value to to Google. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's a. Um, it's providing defensibility to Google's business. Yep. Um, and so I, to 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 carry out that calculation a little a little bit. Um, so then, if you run the flip side of that. Since Google has 80% market share, so you look at the 80% of people that are searching on phones and generating that that $15 billion of, of Google search revenue a year right now, if you take that 34% that they don't have to pay out to other people, Android is effectively saving them $4 billion a year just on that because yep. Google doesn't have to pay for that traffic. Which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, all right. Two things. Real quick to wrap up history and facts, and then we'll move on to um, to acquisition category. Uh, one, I mentioned Motorola earlier. So Google makes um, this move that is in some ways completely brilliant and in other ways completely boneheaded, <laughs> uh, where they buy Motorola in August of 2011 for $12.5 billion. Um, and they say at the time that you know the primary driver of this was Motorola's patent portfolio. And, and this is the brilliant part of it. You know, Apple... Um, Oracle, as we've already talked about, mm-hmm. uh, Microsoft, many others, the phone companies, there starts to be a lot of litigation happening in this space and people are enforcing patents and defending patents and um, Google being a much younger company than these other these other firms, um, 
didn't have the kind of patent bench strength that they did. Mm. Um, so Google buys Motorola, very old company, um, gets all of their patent portfolio, and that helps defend Google in things like the Oracle case. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but the second part of the deal was, oh well, now we're going to have a unified, you know, stack within Google from you know operating system up through the hardware. We're going to make these incredible phones. Uh, didn't happen. That didn't go so well. Didn't yeah. happen. So they end up selling the assets of Motorola to Lenovo um, for $2.9 billion, a lot less than 12 and a half. Yeah. But to the extent they saved themselves from multiple billion dollar judgments against them, may have been successful. Um, the other interesting thing that's going to become very relevant as we do the analysis here, um, in 2010, a company in China is founded called Xiaomi, mm-hmm. which... Um, I presume a lot of our listeners are familiar with, but for those who aren't, you know, this is, you know, people refer to this as the quote unquote Apple of China. And if you've seen that written, that's X I A O M I. Yep. And, and so at this point, uh, sitting here in September, 2016, um, Uber, I believe is the most highly valued private company, technology company in the world. Um, Xiaomi, I believe is the second, Hmm. uh, valued at, somewhere i believe between 40 and 50 billion dollars uh in their last financing um and xiaomi is interesting like they much like samsung and others you know uh have been accused of just copying the iphone Um, but what xiaomi did uh has done samsung was completely reliant on google um you know they just made the hardware and then they had some software you know skins quote unquote that they would put on top of android but it's running google android xiaomi as we talked about completely forked android um have taken over have their own branch of android that they fully control um there's a startup called cyanogen uh that has also done the same thing that only mm-hmm. distributes the operating system uh, and xiaomi kindle fire does the same kindle thing. fire amazon does this with kindle fire um and xiaomi basically leveraged open source android to uh compete with apple and so they make beautiful uh, relatively low cost devices, sell them in China. They're wildly popular. Um, and they run a version of Android that Xiaomi is completely locked down and controls. And this is a good time to, um, to draw the line between what is the Android open source project and what is Android as licensed from Google. So, um, you can get, uh, Android absolutely for free from Google, um, and it comes with all the services that, that uh, Google does with Google Maps, Gmail, uh, Search, most, most importantly, now. access to the Play Store and all the apps in there. Or you can go get the source code yourself and you can fork it and you can, uh, you can just use Android source code. But the, the major disadvantage there is you don't have access on your platform to the Play Store and you don't have access to all these services. So you really have to not only go and build that yourself, the, all those, uh, uh, you know, a mail Or plug and, in other partners. Right, right. But you actually have to build an entire new developer ecosystem. Like Amazon has to go around and convince everyone to submit to the Amazon App Store yep. and the Google Play Store. And that, you know, requires a little bit of work from, from each developer. G- generally worth it, but y- you kind of have this new cold start problem. And so what, what Google sort of has an advantage here is for people who care about, um, for manufacturers that care about having access to all the apps in the Play Store and all those services, they're just going to roll with stock Android and then Google gets to make sure that you don't change any of the search or services away from them. Yep. Um, all right. 
<sighs> Sorry, that was a long one. Uh, there is so much to cover here with Android. Yeah, David, do you think that, uh, so we've, we've kind of talked about like what the point of Android is right now. Do you think that was the strategy when they acquired it and when they started getting into the mobile game? Like why was mobile going to be important to Google in 2005? I don't, I don't know, but I, I don't think there was any way anyone could have foretold what was going to happen, you know, in this market. Uh, I think this was a uh, great buy by Google of a really talented team working on some really cool technology that had a lot of potential. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, well, Google probably knew about the iPhone because Eric Schmidt was on Steve Jobs's board at Apple. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't think anybody really could have figured out exactly how this was going to play out. But but yeah. major, you know, Google has done an amazing job with Android in terms of shepherding it through this wildly complex, uh, you know, gyrations in the market that, by the way, completely killed BlackBerry. Um, so like a company that was many multi-billion dollar company that was the leader in smartphones just decimated, gone. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Microsoft in a lot of ways too, uh, you know, obviously Microsoft is having a resurgence now and didn't, wasn't destroyed, uh, but they were the, like one of the leading mobile operating system providers. And now that's gone. Um, Google really has done a great job shepherding this. Yeah. It's a great point. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com slash acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. All right. Do you want to move on to uh, acquisition category? Absolutely. Awesome. I am going to go with technology here. Uh, other choices, people, product, business line, asset, or other. I don't think, my initial inclination was product, but this was so early that what they were acquiring was not a complete product and not something they could go to market with and something that didn't have its own independent, fully fleshed out strategy. Yep. And what they were really buying was kind of this core core technology that um, has actually 
no one else really went out and tried to build that. Like, it clearly is a difficult piece of technology yeah. to build because... Surprising, it, though, too, because, it, like, clearly it's difficult, but it, it was it itself was based on Linux. Somebody right. else could have also taken Linux, and, you know, the Android team was a super small team when yeah. hadn't raised any VC when Google bought it. Yeah, and now there's no incentive to go out and build anything else because, like, if, if you were going to build anything else, you'd have the cold start problem on all those services anyway. Well, everybody's already on iOS and Android, so... Right, right. But it is interesting how, you know, Google has this core technology and access to services that it licenses out and the, the I guess, it's a free license, but at the very core of that is this technology that they acquired. Yep. Um, I basically gave my answer to this earlier, uh, which, which I won't repeat all of it, but I completely agree. This was a technology acquisition when they bought it. Uh, and then Google has done just this incredible job of shepherding it through, you know, I actually wrote down that it was a technology acquisition with a little bit of some great talent when they bought it. But over time, this has gone from a technology to a product, to a business line, and now an asset at Google. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's really been under the, under the stewardship of the whole company. And it's amazing how it's an it's a asset of defensibility. I mean, really the, the core thing they get from from Android, um, in my opinion, is making sure they don't lose access to all of those people searching. Yep. And for as many of these interesting moonshots as Google is working on, and, and self-driving cars truly could be um, a, a, a very different business for them and a very um, big and profitable one that actually rivals search, like Google makes money from having a marketplace of ads when you search yep. and you know sometimes on other websites. And I think that when you boil it down, they they bought defensibility and yep. and more importantly like it was a cheap buy what they did was invest 10 years into building a entire you know arm of their business to provide defensibility um totally agree should we move on to what would have happened otherwise yeah yeah so i was thinking about this one earlier and my core question is i guess it's two could and would google have built themselves into the position that they're in today if they had not made the Android acquisition. Ah, interesting. We usually think about what would have happened otherwise from the startup's perspective. Yeah, like where is that company going to land? Which here I think is an inter- is a easy question to answer because there's no way... I don't, it, the playing field was so massive here as this market evolved, there's no way a small independent company could have yeah. had this scale of impact. So I don't think Android... Um, it probably would have been bought by somebody else or failed uh, on its own. Um, but uh, but yeah, for Google, could they have done this without buying Android? Like, did they in in um, let's say hypothetically they had the foresight to know that the world would be the way it is today? And which they, again, they knew what Apple was up to. Yep, and and they they knew they would need uh, a competitive mobile operating system or maybe even actual phones to make sure that they own that customer relationship to funnel people to search. Then you have a build or buy decision. And 50 million is a is like, you know, like, let's say they were going to staff a team to go and build basically Android in-house. I, I, it feels like it's close. Yeah. Like it feels like this was not an outlandish. Um, well, and especially back then, I mean, Google was the darling of, silicon valley like everybody wanted to work there they'd just gone public yeah um certainly they could have done it the question i think is would they have you know they they bought android um 
at least part of it was, you know, Larry and Sergey were sidekick fans, right? Uh, and they knew Andy. Um, and Google's M&A strategy has always been about acquiring really talented teams and having those people come into Google and see what they do. Um, and in this case, they hit it out of the park. Would Would anyone at Google have been enough of a champion and visionary about what was going to happen to do right. this otherwise or did you need an andy rubin to kind of be at the helm yeah. of that and like, you know like we said in the beginning i mean andy was born to start this company i mean his whole career to this point you know i mean as steve jobs says you know you can only connect the dots dots looking backwards not mm-hmm. forwards but looking backwards i mean it's hard to imagine anyone more qualified or who had been thinking about this problem about how do you create a really compelling mobile computer and operating you know system Mm -hmm. and experience uh than andy yeah you're right and the thing that keeps tugging at me is you could see a very classic microsoft way to go about this where where um google says okay we gotta have uh phones we're not gonna make the phones we're gonna make the operating system we're gonna charge for the operating system but android already had this whole open source thing going on and they said, you know, we're going to be completely open source. We, uh, they hadn't figured out the like, you know, license package with yep. Google services. Built on Linux. But like, what was that? Yeah, built on Linux. Was that a forcing function to make Google go into this business yeah, strategy of give it away for free? Or would Google have arrived at this give it away for free business strategy on their own if they hadn't acquired Android? And one thing that just popped in my head is you could make the case that, well, compared to the insane business that searches they shouldn't be in the business of selling individual software licenses, right? But they're doing it with Google Apps. Like if you're a company, it's this like tiny portion of their revenue, mm, but yeah. they, they they haven't like totally shied away from the traditional business model of, of like a... Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, if you think about the grade that we gave Google Docs, which is a big part of Google Apps, mm-hmm. um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was it was not an A. Yeah. Um, we haven't graded Android yet, more to discuss, but... I'm pretty confident I'm going to be higher than I was on Google Docs. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that my the the question in my mind that I I don't think we can really answer is um yeah, would would Google have done this very unique open source approach to to grow insanely quickly and get on everyone's uh, uh or get on, you know, 80% of the world's smartphones um without Otherwise, acquiring Android. Yeah. Well, listeners, uh if any of you we're at Google at this time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let us know. Uh, we'd love to. Uh, we'd love to know. Um, okay. Tech themes. Um, we can't go an episode without bringing up Ben Thompson um, and 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 Stratechery, but you have to own the front door to the customer in this day and age. And and the reason Ben and I were talking about this yeah, before the it. show too. I mean, I think the reason why that's important in the current you know internet information economy that we live in is what the internet has done is it has made distribution free. And in the old world, this is, you know, not taking credit for this. This is Ben Thompson's insight here. Um, You know, in the old industrial world, distribution was really hard. And so you had to aggregate distribution. And if you controlled distribution, the customer was your, your surf basically in your kingdom. Um, But now distribution's free and anybody can build anything. Like we were saying, anybody could have built something on top of Linux, Mm -hmm. uh, a mobile operating system. Um, so in that world, you need to win the customer and you need to have the best customer experience. Yep. Yep. That is one of mine too. Um, and I think the um, the spin that I had on that was, um, 
if you think about what Microsoft was trying to do at that point in time with Windows Mobile, um, you know, the the Microsoft way of thinking, uh, which is is evolving now, but but certainly still at that point in time was like we control everything you need to distribute a computing experience to a customer. You know, we have a deep relationship with Intel. Um, we have all the software developers that can make our own proprietary operating system. We don't use open source. Um, and we have relationships with all the carriers, uh, the phone carriers, and we can push this stuff out into market and that's mm-hmm. great. And people will use it, you know, especially corporate customers cause they need it. But like windows mobile, especially in that day and age sucked. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe I had one of those devices at one <laughs> point in time and it was very frustrating. Um, and, and, they didn't approach it from this way that, you know, Ben, you're talking about, uh, that we're talking about now of like, oh, hey, like we can just take Linux and build this, you know, and let's build something awesome on top of it. Right. Um, so that's one. The other one that I wanted to talk about that I referenced earlier was um, thinking about how the mobile market has played out. It's interesting to see, like, you kind of see this in technology that like the area of competition and like what's interesting kind of moves up the stack. So in um you know in the old pc world it was like the hardware you know um was it you're gonna buy a mac or you're gonna buy a pc right and then in the beginning of the phone world uh as we talked about it wasn't really so much about the hardware whether you're gonna buy because google wasn't and android wasn't competing in hardware Mm -hmm. but it was the services you know are you gonna buy uh, an Android phone that has Google services baked into it, or are you going to buy an Apple phone that has Apple services and that Google can still participate in that, but they're paying the Apple tax. What's interesting is I think now that the, you know, the great mobile holy wars are pretty much over as far as we think. I mean, who knows what will happen in the future? Mm-hmm. The level of competition has kind of further elevated up the stack to the application layer, you know, and like now it's and like services and, and well, services, some services, right? But like not core level services, not like operating system level stuff, you know? It's like, are you going to use Uber or Lyft? Um, are you going to spend your attention uh, in Snapchat or in Facebook or in Instagram? Um, you know, these are the these are where money is being made today. And this is where the, the playing field exists. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not at the level of the operating system anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when people talk... I think this is kind of a red herring, at least in not in China. Um, but people have talked about like moving even further up into being on top of the messenger ecosystem. And maybe we'll see that happen. You know, and people are talking about bots and Slack bots. And right. We're on the right early, early stage of the hype cycle on those. Early guys. stage of the hype cycle. Um, but it is definitely a theme that you see in technology that like this level of play keeps getting further pushed up the stack. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. Totally agreed. Well, I think it's time to grade the acquisition. Before I throw out my grade, a, a, a couple of uh, here's my here's my reasoning and logic. So Android makes money for Google in two ways. One is advertisements supplied by Google and shown on uh, on Android phones, and the other is revenue Google takes from its mobile app store Google Play. And uh, we haven't talked much about that yet. That's a that's a non-trivial amount of money. Yep. Um, if uh, since we're we're going off of the the data that Oracle opened up in this lawsuit, it's uh, reported that they had thirty one billion dollars of uh, of revenue per year from Android, and so we we've seen the estimate that fifteen percent of that or fifteen billion dollars of that is from mobile search revenue, 
between um, iOS and Android largely on, uh, I guess, so it'd be about $12, $12 billion of that because it's all, all from Android. And then you have like uh, the rest of that is, you know, there's some amount from the, the actual phones that they're selling because Google sells the, the Nexus phones. But then a lot of that, that top line, um, you know, 10 to $15 billion of it is, is from the, the Google Play Store. And Google keeps thirty percent of that, so let's say three to four billion dollars a year is uh, is made from from the actual Play Store. So that in itself, much like how the the App Store for Apple is a great business, you know, compared to their their other businesses, it's it's not um, you know it's not not insane. But um, that in yeah. itself would you know on a fifty fifty million dollar acquisition would be great. But the the thing that I think Android really did is um, ensure that Google was safe for the next decade or two as the world changed out from under them, and they were at great risk of uh, losing access to their customers. And they um, they engineered a strategy here where they um, not only you know went and got a, a lot of those customers uh, kind of back and, and made sure that as they transitioned to mobile, they um, they stayed with direct access direct access to Google, but and actually even tighter since they never owned the operating system on desktop, but really were the the primary place to go for the developing world as people came online for the first yep. time. And so I think uh, Google's core a- asset marches on and is well protected, and uh, this is an A+. Yeah. Um, for me, the question about grading this is um, question whether this is an A or an A+. Uh, no doubt this was you know $50 million for something that is achieved, even even though it didn't start this way, but over time achieved everything that we've talked about in this episode for Google. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, as <laughs> as David Lowey said, you know, perhaps uh, Google's best deal ever. Yeah, the, um, the Goldman number says $22 billion of profit last year from the Android division. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> um, the thing that I'm wrestling with a little bit is... Um, in in trying to determine whether to give the plus or not is this was in many ways again i don't think they saw it this way at the time but this was a defensive acquisition this was not an offensive acquisition and i'm comparing it with instagram which is kind of our gold standard here instagram is so much simpler than android i would still say defensive though well it's interesting right like defensive yes Uh, existentially as i guess android was in some ways too but not really because people were still going to keep using google services Mm -hmm. whether it was on a google property or not Mm -hmm. like this was just like preventing them from paying the 30 whatever percent tax Mm -hmm. and and lots of other things too but instagram was much more about like oh we're gonna up level the playing field now um like i was talking about in tech themes like we're gonna move up the stack I don't know. I'm struggling with that. Like part of me feels like I want to just the, you know, the like bold part of me wants to like reward offensive acquisitions and forward thinking acquisitions. Not that Android wasn't, you know, more than defensive. Um, I I would still say that that Instagram was was not a uh, a, a bold offensive forward thinking. Like ultimately that they sell attention to advertisers and they were at risk of losing. Yep. Which is the same thing that advertise that Facebook sells. Uh, Facebook and Instagram and Google all do the same thing. They, they all sell, sell attention, attention to advertisers. advertisers. Yep. And uh, I think they they 
it was interesting, like Facebook's move was defensive in that they wanted to make sure that they captured Instagram's attention and could sell that to advertisers too. Google knew that they were going to keep getting the attention, but basically wanted to save their margin. A new, a new, yep. And platform on which to do it. Yeah, I'm struggling. I think it's an A plus. <laughs> <laughs> he he oh says God, in a very man. defeated yeah, I'm tone. defeated. I'm I'm limping into the A plus here, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but which makes me think I don't want to be limping into the A plus. I want to be charging into the A plus, you know? Okay, what acquisition ever is an A plus? Instagram. I mean, Android has already made a lot more money for Google than Instagram has for Facebook. But I think th- I think this is what I'm having a hard time with, and maybe it's just semantics. But like Android has saved Google a lot of money. Instagram has mm. made Facebook a lot of money. Yeah, I'll you buy in on saying? that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Android is effectively a margin saver. Yep. Whereas Instagram is like, this is a new revenue engine um, for yeah. for Facebook. Yeah, presuming that uh, Google would have gotten the queries from all the n- new people that were lighting up and basically like new people coming online for the first time. All right, here's what I'm going to say. Android is my new gold standard for defensive acquisitions and is an A-plus <laughs> in that regard. Right. I still like to play offense more than defense. Yep. All right. It's interesting because at the time, it, we just keep going back to this. I don't think it was defensive when they bought it. But what, no. it, what it ends up turning out to be is uh, the most one of the most incredible defensive plays of all time. All right. On that note. On that note. Um, Let's move quickly into follow-ups. Yeah, yeah. So sticking with Google, a uh, couple episodes we covered Waze. Uh, this is one of those quirks of history on our show that I think we I think we spoke too soon here. Uh, we, we are going to have to do a full follow-up episode on on this. Maybe, maybe on automotive technology generally at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but within the last couple of weeks... Uh, Google and Waze announced that they are now doing ride sharing within Waze, uh, competing. The product is slightly different, but competing with Uber um, and, and Lyft too, but competing with Uber. Um, interestingly, of which Google is a major shareholder in Uber. Um, and David Drummond, uh, Google's head of corp dev and chief legal officer, was on Uber's board and resigned after this happened. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it shows that. Uh, I mean, we our our assertion with the Waze episode was that mostly they were using Waze data, but not like doing massive reinvestments in that product to make Google Maps better and potentially um, provide data for their self driving car stuff. And what they're showing now is that they're actually using they're Waze, playing offense, not just defense, yeah, here. to introduce new products and try new things and. Um, you know, not only is it a new thing that, that is interesting, it's it's probably the most interesting new thing that they're doing that they're rolling out through, and they've chosen Waze. And they've chosen Waze, yeah. Super interesting. Not Google Maps. Yeah. The question is, like, so when they... So that they're going to do their car sharing through Waze. Right now, their self-driving cars are much more of an independent thing. Does that mean that they do a self-driving car service rolled out through Waze instead of yeah. through other? Well, I wonder here, too, how much the fact that Google is a huge shareholder in Uber and David Drummond was on Uber's board played into the decision to do this through Waze here. Like, oh, you know, this is this company that, you know, is still standalone. They're based in Israel. And, and Waze had, had rolled out ride sharing in Israel long mm. ago. Um, the news was that they brought it to San Francisco. Right. Um, 
you know, so this is sort of like our independent division doing this, you know, not related to Google corporate, you know, it's sort of like a head fake here. Had, if Google were not an investor in Uber, would they have rolled this out through Google Maps? Huh. I don't know. I, I, and and really the question is, is it actually that, that much different than what already existed in, in their uh, Israeli product? And then they just decided like, yeah, we'll try it here too. Because yeah. is, is it actually as big a deal as the press and we are now making it out to be? Well, Uber thinks it's a big deal for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. The, it's a, it, it, To continue our, our mention from earlier about how fast things change, like friends become enemies very quickly when things like this happen. As we saw with Apple and Google. Yep. Yep. So who does new markets uh, who, who does, create a lot of competition in, in five years? Who is uh, Uber using as their maps provider on Android? Hundred percent Uber. Yeah. I mean, the, actually, a lot of Uber driver rides that I take now, um, the drivers are using the native Uber navigation huh. and not switching over to Waze or Google Maps. But isn't it still uh, like you still need the core Maps product underneath, even if they're navigation? Yeah, but is... Uber bought. Um, oh, I'm blanking on on who they bought, but they bought some assets from Nokia, I believe. I believe the, they the brought... Here, here Maps, yep. they're part of that conglomerate, yeah. Yep. Huh. All right. Uh, quick hot take. Uh, not an acquisition, but we thought it'd be fun to talk about, especially given the content of this episode. Apple's big event, launching the iPhone 7 and yeah. uh, and AirPods. <laughs> or no, AirPods. Uh, AirPods, yeah. AirPods, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, we're just seeing like the full maturation of, of mobile. Like, it's interesting to see phones are where laptops were 10 years ago. And, um, you know, it starts to open the question for what's next. Like, I got excited. Yep. I bought one. That, of course, that was going to happen. Um, it's it's going to be an incredible product. Uh, all the changes that are made are largely incremental, except for their continued uh, breakthrough um, advancements with the, the uh, cameras, which I'm super excited about. I heard another interesting point that this could be Apple's soft foray into VR capture. That because of the dual camera yeah, system on the plus, yeah, yeah, that, that that's something that's kind of going um, uh, unsaid a little bit. Is uh, you know, a- Apple just launched a phone that'll be in you know hundreds of millions of people's hands that has two cameras, and they they can kind of do some interesting things with software with that later. Um, who knows? Yeah. But uh, wait, so here's what's really interesting to me about the Apple event um, last week, and. I'm really surprised that people aren't talking about this or maybe just not people I'm following are talking about this. You know, Apple is super secretive about their roadmap, what they do. They don't talk about anything, but they do drop these hints, you know, and if you look, if you listen closely to what they're saying, it's usually not a surprise what they end up doing. And I was really struck when they were talking about AirPods um and talking about the removal of the headphone jack and everybody's focusing on you know the courage right and like yeah that was probably a poor (laughs) choice of words um but uh but here's what i think they're saying i think they're saying like we are moving in with our maybe it's the next iphone maybe it's two down the road or maybe this happens incrementally we're moving to a world where there are no wires um you know there's there's no cord to your earphones mm-hmm. uh there's no power cord mm-hmm. um there's nothing tethering you and and that means that the device is actually kind of secondary and if you look at the airpods you know double tap to activate siri like we're moving to a world where computing is just on you part of you around you all the time people have been talking about this you know this is part of what Ale- amazon is doing with alexa mm-hmm. um but that to me was a really strong message from apple that coming soon yeah. uh 
Siri, which we've done our episode on Siri, and we are Ben and I are very skeptical of Apple on this. Like Siri is going to control your computing experience. It may or may not be through a screen. Yeah, expect more chips in AirPods 2 and AirPods 3 and in yep. AirPods 7. Get excited because you won't need a phone. Yep. And we'll go from there. We'll go from there. All right. That's our hot take. Carve out. Yeah, mine's quick. Uh, reading a really cool book right now. Uh, it's called Business Adventures by John Brooks. Oh, so good. It's uh, short vignettes, maybe like 20 to 30 pages each that are stories of incredible things that happened in business over the last hundred years. Um, the, the first couple are awesome. The 1962 stock market crash, talking about the impact of the, the fact that trades were happening at a higher velocity than could be printed out. So no one knew what price they were buying things for when they put in a, a, a buy order and a sell order on, on some of these crazy crash days. And um, the second chapter that I'm on right now is the, uh, the colossal failure of the Ford Edsel and, oh, uh, that's a good one. and the kind of history and, and how that came to be. And just super great and and really nice if you're um, doing a lot of short flights or something like that where you can go knock out 30 pages, but um, then you won't pick it up again for, you know, a month or something and don't want to forget. They're very kind of bite-sized. This is a great book uh, recommended to me a while back by my buddy Matt Nierlinger, who's at at AVP, which is a a growth VC firm in in San Francisco. Um, This, I believe, is uh, one of Bill Gates' favorite books and I think his favorite business book. Yeah, he's uh, endorsed it on the cover. (laughs) <laughs> pretty killer endorsement. Uh, hard, hard to beat that. Um, mine is also quick. Uh, it is the ESPN OJ documentary. Uh, it is so good. Have you seen this, Ben? No, but you were telling oh, me man. about it. You gotta, everybody's got to watch this. It is a um, five-part documentary series. Uh, Jenny, my wife, and I are in the midst of watching it now. We're, we're through the first three parts. So good. I'd say it's like, it's like 30 to 40% about OJ and the rest the majority of about like what was going on in america you know from the civil rights movement in the 60s up through the 90s and you know and then specifically like in la race relations in la the police in la you know i mean this is where nwa was you know there's so much deep history here that's not um people know about but like this is just such a fantastic job covering it um also i didn't realize like for people kind of been in my age, OJ just like it's the trial, right? Like that's all we think about him. Yeah. But he was an incredible football player, like way like head and shoulders above everybody else. So really great to watch. Uh, highly recommend to everybody. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. 
and these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. All right, that's what we got for you. If, uh, if you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. And if you feel so inclined, we would love a review on iTunes. Um, and if you want to share this episode, tweet about it, put it on Facebook, tell your coworkers. Um, yeah, really appreciate it as a listener. Thanks so much. Thanks to you, everybody. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now?